Let's turn to our word this morning, and we are going to be in Matthew chapter 6 as we study through the Sermon on the Mount, and in particular this week, the Lord's Prayer. We come to one prayer. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I want to begin by telling you a story. Actually, I want, to put your, I want you to put yourself into the story. It's December 1940, and you live in a village, small village, about 5,000 people at the time, in the hills of southern France, a village called Les Chabon. As you listen to Pastor Andre Tokme of the Reformed Church preach a sermon on this December morning, you realize it's not a traditional Christmas message. Instead, he's preaching from Deuteronomy 19.10, which reads, I command you this day to protect the refugee, lest innocent blood be shed in your land, so that the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. And throughout this sermon and others, he begins making the case for the village of Leshaban, your village, to be a refuge for the Jews and for others fleeing the Nazis. This is a dangerous message. For earlier that same year, the Nazis had achieved complete and total victory over the French army. They are now the occupying force of the land in the eyes of many people, most people, the legitimate government, for the time being at least. To protect those whom this government was seeking would be to open yourself up to persecution, perhaps even arrest and being sent to a concentration camp. You do feel the pull of the gospel call as Jesus to love as Jesus loved. You also feel the pull of giving in to the new values and power of the conquerors. You know the truth that God will bring judgment. You even dare to hope your own people will once again be free. But you also know that the fate of many who have denied the Nazis before. You've heard and seen what's happened to them. And so you see others respond and offer refuge. And as you see and as you watch, hundreds and then several thousand Jews and others, most of them children find a refuge and a hiding place in your village and you must decide uh, do you fight the oppression of the ruling class and the authority that's over you or do you simply keep your head low try to get on as best you can do you resist or collaborate this is a true story a true dilemma that each resident of Le Shaban had to face and had to choose between in the years of 1941 to 1945. Some chose one way. They didn't help. They didn't collaborate, although they, did, they didn't report either very often. And some the other. They actively resisted the, the Nazis and, and participated in hiding, saving many, many Jewish people transferring some of them, escorting them all the way to the border of Switzerland. Well, I tell that story because the dilemma they face illustrates in some ways the very well-known, perhaps well-not understood, verse of Scripture this morning. Let your kingdom come and let your will be done, as we see it here in Matthew chapter 6. Why don't we, uh, let's 
we normally begin our service sermon with prayer. Why don't we stand up and say this prayer together? Our Father, the one in heaven, let your name be hallowed. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Grant us as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but rescue us from the evil. Father, as we look at your words, we know this, God. We have it memorized. It's on many of our walls. Would you show us, though, what you want us to learn by this template of prayer that you give us? Thank you, Father. Amen. The people of Le Shaban in some ways face a unique test, obviously. But in other ways, it illustrates the quandary of those who find themselves having to choose who their allegiance belongs to. In many ways, it's similar to the years in England between uh, 1090 and 1094. King Richard had gone off to war. He said he would be back in a couple years, three at most, but he was delayed. Shipwrecked, bad fortune, he was captured for a while, and he didn't come back. And his brother, a very evil man, Prince John, assumed the throne, and for a while people had to choose. Where does my loyalty belong? In the same way, we have to recognize that this prayer is more than just uh, a phrase on a plaque, more than just a familiar-sounding prayer. This is actually a very crucial test of our loyalties in our allegiance. Now, in order to see this, we're going to have to look at some background theology, and we need to be reminded of some fundamental truths. And the first is this. God has a kingdom. God has a kingdom. Uh, and it's not here yet, and that's a problem. Now, do you remember when we started this sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount? The first sermon we talked about this, and particularly, we looked at, at this verse and others where the idea of the kingdom of God is the central focus of Jesus' message. So if you ask New Testament scholars, what's the overarching theme, what it ties together, all that Jesus is talking about, they will say it's the kingdom of God. He uses that phrase again and again and again. It's, and this is kind of a summary statement of, of what he was preaching. Later on in Matthew 9, when he sends out the disciples on their own mission, he says they went out and preached the kingdom of God. Now notice he says the kingdom of God has come near, or some translations, it is at hand. And then as we began to look at the Sermon of the Mount itself, it starts with these Beatitudes, the first and the last, all tie into this, this kingdom of heaven, which uh, I view as synonymous with the kingdom of God. And then uh, this same chapter, later on, what does he tell us? Don't worry about all the things we normally worry about. Instead, set one thing before you. Seek God's kingdom and his righteousness, and he's going to take care of the rest. Now, again, through the rest of Matthew, he's going to come back to this thought about the kingdom. He's going to explain it in so many parables. But I want us to get our understanding here. This idea of God's kingdom is central to Jesus' message the good news is centered on the fact that Jesus has come and brought in this kingdom. But again, the paradox is that it's not here yet. And we're going to explore that a little, little bit. The kingdom is both present and future. Matthew 17, Jesus says the kingdom is here, it's at hand. But in our passage, we're told to pray that your kingdom would come. In many other passages, it's something in the future. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, 
I think the best way to kind of think about this is by analogy. The kingdom we have to wait for. It's like a, a pregnant woman waits to see this child that she longs for. It's not here yet. There's a delivery date on the calendar, and she waits for that. We ask, when is your due date? When will that joy be fulfilled? So it's a future event, but at the same time, she feels this new life stirring within her. It's not like it's just this vain hope that maybe someday I'll have a child. She feels it. She knows it's the process is already at hand. It's just the timing now that has to be worked out. Now, that's an analogy. When Jesus comes and brings the good news of the gospel, God in human flesh, and when he goes to the cross, he is inaugurating this kingdom. Creation itself is now pregnant with the kingdom, as it were. So that's kind of the, the, the idea behind this. The kingdom is here, but it's also future. Now, the kingdom, when it comes, and this will help us to see why, why it's delayed from our perspective, it will bring three things. It will bring judgment and it will be, bring perfection. Judgment, as the judge sits on his throne and judges all people and all values. It will bring restoration. God restoring all things. And that's why you have in Revelation, uh, the last chapter, is that imagery of the Garden of Eden. Why? Because it's going to look just like a garden? No. The point is that God is restoring perfection to creation. And, and that's the last point. He brings perfection. In fact, uh, Best way to describe what this kingdom is like, if you could put it in, in one sentence, would be this. The kingdom is God's perfect reign over the earth through Jesus and those who are in Jesus. We have a part. We are those in Jesus. The, the kingdom is God's perfect reign over the earth through Jesus and in Jesus. We'll come back to this here in a second to explore this idea a little bit more of his kingdom. But it's, it's a good idea to remind us of something else. Ready for this? Satan also has a kingdom that's active within our world. It is in play right now, and it has been since the fall of mankind. Don't believe me? Well, to recall that Jesus himself, twice in the Gospel of John, says that Satan is the prince of this world. And uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says he is prince of the power of the air. This is probably the most interesting passage in this regard, though. This is Luke's account of the temptation of Jesus. And what does he say? <clears throat> says the devil led him up to the high place, showed him in, all, in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their splendor, for it has been given to me. And I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, do you notice what Jesus doesn't say? He doesn't say, you big fat liar. You don't have any kingdom. You don't have any authority. He doesn't deny. This is an interesting concept. How does this work? Well, we're not fully told, I think, the mechanism of how Satan has some legitimate rule or kingdom for a while. But I believe it has to go back to Adam and Eve. As they're representatives of humanity, and as representatives of humanity, they have a link to the physical cosmos itself. 
And what do they do with their, the free will that God gives them? They choose to take their allegiance away from God and give it to the evil one. I mean, think. Adam and Eve cannot disbelieve God and sin against God. They can't go against his word without going along with the word, the suggestion of the evil one. So the spiritual realm is difficult for us to pierce through and understand fully. And I'm not sure I have all this right. But verses like this tell us, in some way, Satan has a kingdom operating now pervasively within our culture and in our world. Now, I put this chart up here. I can email you this. I meant to, and I, I don't think I did attach it to that email, did I? But in some ways, the word kingdom, of course, is going to be used slightly differently when you're talking about the kingdom of the evil one, the kingdom of man, of a man, um, or the kingdom of God. In particular, though, maybe some of the things we can highlight. The kingdom of the evil one has great but limited power, unlike the kingdom of God. The kingdom of the evil one, as well as the kingdom of man, they have a, a time frame. There is an expiration date, but not this kingdom. The kingdom of the evil one reigns over the earth. The kingdom of God will reign over all cosmos. This kingdom reigns through lies and violence, but this king defeats the enemies by truth, by accepting at the cross and subverting violence. The kingdom of the evil one reigns over his subjects often unwittingly, so we don't know there's a deception involved. But the kingdom of God, the king reigns through his subjects, through their choice and for good. Now, here's one I really want to highlight. This kingdom seems permanent. Like in 1943, 1942, if you were living in Le Chabon, France, man, if you were going to put betting money on, on whether the, uh, the Allies were going to win this war or whether the Nazis were going to establish a permanent, uh, a permanent place over France, the good money would have been bet to bet on the Nazis right then. Things seem permanent that aren't. This kingdom of the evil one, the violence, the untruth, the, the deception, the pain, the misery, the evil we see, it seems so permanent because it's all we've known, like we were born up in that village. But it's not. There will be a day when the kingdom will come, but it will never fade or pass away. And then lastly, one is born into this kingdom without choice, but one is reborn into this kingdom by the king's provision and one's own choice. So this kind of highlights what it means when we are praying, your kingdom come. We are asking God. We are saying, God, let this progressively and increasingly take the place of this. That's what we're praying about. That's what we're asking well, one other, uh, one, one other thing here that we want to talk about. All right. With a little bit of background now, uh, what it means to pray this, uh, what this kingdom concept means. One, one final question we're going to ask. All right. What do we do in response to this? What does it mean to actually pray and seek God's kingdom? I'm going to put this in three words. Three words. One, anticipation. Looking, longing for that kingdom. If there is one thing markedly different 
in the Western church, United States and Europe and Canada and Australia, there's one thing markedly different in our kinds of churches versus the churches of the first century, as well as many churches in the developing world, it's this. We do not have the same longing for the kingdom of God, for Jesus to come back. In fact, if we're honest, it might be because we're just simply too comfortable here. We've got it pretty good. And we do not have the same longing for Jesus to come back. Anticipation is what raises our eyes above the anger and divisiveness of so much of our culture. It reminds us that man-made solutions can only go so far. Anticipation is what frees us from the idolatry to these things and, and from feeling that we have to right the wrongs that were perpetuated against us or those on our side, right? And anticipation is what keeps us from settling down too comfortably with the values of this kingdom, simply trying to make our life as comfortable as possible. You know, it's no accident that the communist government in China lays down one rule on the preaching of the churches that it approves. You can preach on a lot of things and still be approved by the government. Of course, many churches are not approved, but that's another story. But if you want to get government approval, you submit your sermons to them ahead of time, and there's one thing that they will censor every time, and that is any preaching or teaching on the second coming of Jesus Christ. Because that is a word of judgment, and they know it. And it is a word that there is something that transcends the values of their government and their culture. And that's a word to us as well, right? They know, even if we've forgotten, that this second coming is a game changer. It shows that God will judge every nation, every person, every value, every choice. And so it's a frightful thing to live in line with this, but it's also a wondrous thing to know that God will make everything right. So the first thing that this means to pray and to long and seek for that kingdom is anticipation. We want this to happen. And the second thing is alignment. Alignment. That we align ourselves with this truth. So last week, remember I brought out this little naval sexton and, uh, and we talked about how the ancient mariners, of course they didn't have GPS, and even going off the course a little bit exponentially would be increased each day. And eventually, uh, you know, you'd, you'd end up in Nova Scotia when you wanted to go to southern Mexico and you just don't have the clothes for Nova Scotia. So what are you going to do? Well, what you do is you get out the sextant and every night you take a measure of the heavens, you take a measure of the star, where the stars are, where the moons are. You, you know, according to your charts, what day it is and where it should be according to your position. And what do you do? Well, you don't just throw your hands up and say, okay, well, we're really off course. No, you adjust your course based on what you see in the heavens. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Your will be done on earth. It's already being done in heaven. So the truth is that God's will is perfect and right. It's already being done in the heavenly realms, but not here. But I want to align myself with that truth. That's the idea. This speaks to our ultimate choices. What is our life about? Is it simply about getting more successful? Is it simply about improving my life in whatever terms I define that is? Is it simply being more comfortable, more secure, gaining treasures and pleasures? Or is there something else? Is there some permanent reason or purpose I'm here and that we're all here? Or am I just adrift? Let me illustrate this another way. Um, I was talking to, to Nate and Abby before the service, and they mentioned that uh, you know they were on the missions 
I forget what they go. But basically, they were at Go Missions, our headquarters, for some more training and, and guidance. And they're telling me that one of the sermons, at least one of them, was about the same thing, the kingdom of God. And the illustration the teacher used was the idea of currency, money. So you got some coins in your pocket here. Can you imagine if you're living in that 19, in that village in 1942 and Les Shaban and the Nazis decreed that if you're true, true uh, participants in the Reich and their new rule, they must use a German mark instead of the French franc. Which one are you going to use? That's the idea. When we choose to stay angry, when we choose bitterness, when we choose apathy, when we choose self-pity and lust and selfishness and revenge, we are using the currency of the old kingdom, the kingdom that's going away, the kingdom that's corrupt. But when we choose forgiveness, when we choose trust, when we choose purity, when we choose compassion, when we choose love and service, we're using the coins of the new kingdom. We're showing where we're aligned with, right? And then lastly, anticipation and alignment, partnership. Really wanted to make this one start with A2, but uh, uh, partnership. Like the residents of Les Shaban, we can actually do something to work and seek for this kingdom. There are a couple avenues that we can do this in. One, well, we work for the kingdom when we align ourselves and our values and choices with it. But at least but going beyond that, we work by bringing the mercy and justice of this kingdom into our interactions with society. The world talks about social justice. That's a good goal. God loves justice. Micah 5.2 puts it this way. What does God require of you, O man, but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? But what you won't hear from the world is, number one, what justice actually means. How are you going to define it? and why we should seek it. But we know justice means that God's compassion is given to those who need it the most. God's help is given to those who are helpless. God's mercy is given to the merciless. God's heart is shown to the needs of people, regardless of whether they've achieved or anything else, especially to those not in power. And we know why God wants this, because this is what God showed to us. The kind of justice that makes this kingdom, this society, more like the truth and the beauty and the equity of the kingdom of heaven. We understand. And that, that both should encourage us, but also give contours and shapes to the kind of justice and how we seek that justice. But we, we bring forth the kingdom by this mercy and justice that Micah 5.2 talked about, especially showing compassion to those marginalized or in need. We work towards the kingdom by witness. We work towards the kingdom by showing and displaying the gospel truth. These two kind of go together, like my right and my left hand. The work that I show, the compassion, the character, but also the words. It's when we explain to people and help them to see the claims of God, but also the promise of the gospel, that this world is not the end, and their sufferings in this world are not the end, but there is something that transcends and goes beyond this, the work of Jesus on the cross. And as we explain that and invite people into this kingdom, the kingdom grows. In fact, I believe that we must work to change society. But the main avenue we are to do that with is not with the hammer of politics. It's with the open hand 
of the gospel of discipleship. I'm not saying politics is wrong. We should vote. We should stay informed. But it's not a substitute. It's not a substitute. This is not a top-down thing imposed through, through power, which is what politics is about. This is a transformation of the inner person. It's an inner work. And I believe that when people are more discipled and brought to be more like Jesus Christ, then society will be more just and right as it should be. We work for the kingdom then by witnessing and sharing the gospel. We work for the kingdom. And finally, and this goes back to some of the points we've talked on before, just by living as disciples of Jesus Christ. You know, there are some people who don't know the currency of the kingdom till we show it, till we illustrate it. They're using the German marks because they've never seen anyone use the French francs. And if they do, they haven't understood why. That's the idea. That when we pray and seek this kingdom, this is what we mean. And then lastly, last point here. <laughs> we seek the kingdom when we pray for it. And that brings us right back to where we started, right? Let your kingdom come. He says we should seek his kingdom. But even before that, in the same chapter, he says, pray that this kingdom comes. How the world needs to hear this, how we need to hear this. Because we are tempted to get angry, we're tempted to work in our own strength and our own ideas. And the first thing we have to do is we have to come back to this idea. Father, you are the one in heaven. I want your name to be lifted up. I want your name to be hallowed. I want your kingdom to come. Would you let your kingdom come? Show me if I can be a part of this. Show me what that means to more and more like your will be done here on earth like it already is in heaven. But God, bring this about. This reminds us we have a partnership, but the real power in this partnership and the real guidance in this partnership is with him. Our work is real, but our prayer is even stronger. I like what C.S. Lewis says. There are two main things that God has given us in order to impact our world. One is work and the other is prayer. And we're tempted to think that work is more powerful because it's visible and concrete. He says, but actually the opposite is true because only one of those does God put a veto power on. You can go out and work and God's not usually going to interfere with that, but you pray and God says, let me see. I will, I will sift it through my own vision of love. And many times he doesn't answer our prayers. Why? Because he's powerless? No. Because he has a veto power on it by his own wisdom and what things are aligned with his purpose and his kingdom. Prayer is more powerful than work. We should work, but we need to bathe that in prayer as well. So this is a challenge for us. When we are saying, God, your kingdom come, this is not just a vague thing, you know, a, a familiar phrase. We are aligning ourselves with this kingdom of God. We are saying, God, I want this to come. Move my heart towards this. Bring it about. Show me if anything I can do today helps accomplish this.